Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. down with Shabana Taj, who has uh, very recently taken over as the General Secretary of the Wales uh, Trade Union Congress. Shabana, you're quite an unusual trade unionist in many respects because you don't come from a traditional sort of background. Mm-hmm. Um, your dad moved here from Pakistan yes. in the 1950s. Yes, yeah, late um, 1950s. Yeah, but you were brought up in Cardiff. So tell me yeah. a bit about your uh, your roots and uh, and your childhood. I describe myself as uh, Cardiff born and bred, and you know this is my home city. That I'm, you know, very proud of my Welsh identity, and do consider myself a part and parcel of the fabric of of our great city and, and our nation. I've always, right from the get-go, being very aware of injustice and um, struggle and what that means, um, partly because of the fact that my dad was used to work in steelworks, he was a health and safety union rep. And it's funny because the building that I now work and operate in is a building that he would come in to whenever they had a dispute and when something big was happening. So as a child, this was like the great big place where things got dealt with. And whenever um, they strike action, etc., you know, we were always very aware of, of what was going on, particularly during the days of, of Thatcher and what have you. And since then, I've just always got involved in local campaigning, a lot of anti-racist sort of work from a very young age, from high school onwards, from the age of like 14, 15, I've been active and I, you know, I'm enormously sort of privileged and, you know, really honoured to be in a position now where I'm acting General Secretary of the Wales TUC. I mean, this is, for me, a genuinely a place, you know, we've got 400,000 members um, across the affiliated unions in Wales. This is a real difficult time politically. There's a lot going on. There's loads of exciting things happening in terms of the potential that we have of changes and impacting legislation positively as we set to leave the EU. But at the same time, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty in, in, in all of that as well. Um, and we've got a, a real journey ahead of us. So from being at school in Cate's... Uh, Cate's High School, yeah. Where did you go on to study after that? After Cate's High School, I went to College Glanhaverham, um, where I did my levels And the reason why we actually had... And you say, you know, about people's personal stories. So in Cate's High School, we had a sixth form. And I was told by uh, the head of sixth form at the time that I couldn't do my A-levels in the school because there was this view that many minority young girls at the time were being taken away to Pakistan or Bangladesh. And you're probably going to... She lit her words where you, you will... You know, the, the fact of the matter is you probably won't be able to complete your studies 
because at the time there'd been other, you know, young girls that had left. And therefore, you know, you maybe you want to reconsider what it is that you want to do. That sounds quite shocking. I know, I know. The crazy thing is, is that in 2020, I talked to black minority young people and many of the experiences that I had growing up and sort of trying to navigate and fight back at the same time against systemic structural discrimination and racism existed in those days and still exists today. But I went to uh, College Clan Haveron and it happened to be that the head um, of the year at that time was my old French teacher in Cate's High School and she remembered me. So, so I spoke to her and she was like, of course you can do your levels. You've got the pace, you should do your levels. So I did my levels there. I then went to what's now South Wales University. So I was studying up in Pontypridd Law School. I started studying, studying law, yeah. I studied yeah. law. At that time, I think I thought I was going to be... I was going to be like a human rights lawyer or something. For me, it was always about fighting for a level playing field, of fl- you know, fighting for the rights of people to to be treated equally, regardless of who you were. You know, I don't come from a privileged background. I come from a working class background. I'm very proud of the fact that I, I come from a working class background, and I think that when you have to struggle. And, you know, nowadays people talk, there's a lot of discussion about identity politics and what have you. And um, whilst I don't like to outrightly categorise myself in a certain way, because I always say I'm a trade unionist first and foremost. And as a trade unionist, all of these things matter to me because I cannot fixate on one issue over the other because there is no hierarchy when it comes to equality, when it comes to justice, when it comes to freedom. There is absolutely no hierarchy. Um, and as soon as you start fixating on one, you kind of miss the point of what it was that you set out to do to begin with. Um, so I went on, I did that. Um, I decided um, that I wasn't enjoying myself so much. And maybe I didn't want to be a lawyer, didn't want to be a solicitor. So um, I changed to, I did end up doing like a higher national diploma, the HNDs. Got a 2-1, it was great, okay. And then I went on to what I really wanted to study, which was sociology and international relations. And I did that in UE in Bristol. And I had really amazing, really lefty socialist professors who were trade unionists themselves. And I think that had a real impact in terms of what I did next. Because I remember you telling me a couple of years ago when you were president of the Wales TUC that you did quite a lot of jobs, Mm. didn't you? Presumably you worked your way through um, University of Bit. Yes, yes, yes. So I always worked, um, like I say, I mean, you know, I didn't come from a privileged background. So, of course, you worked. So from a very young age, from from the age of 15, 16, I was working. Uh, My sister used to own a fabric shop, so I used to work there. As soon as I turned... Um, I was like 17, going on 18. I started working, I don't know if you remember, in um, in Cardiff in town, there used to be this shop called the, the Sweater Shop. And everyone used to walk around with these jumpers on with the sweater shop. So that was my first sort of job in this, in, a, in the city centre. And then I worked in all kinds of retail. I worked in Superdrug, I worked in all the lots of, not to name drop for, for all these companies, but I, I did do lots of different jobs, worked in lots of different call centres, all that type of environment, and therefore I do know what it is to have rubbish wages, to have a bad boss, to have um, a really 
unhealthy, unsafe working environment. I know what a good work environment looks like in comparison. You know, and I think that if you are going to be in this type of position, you need to know what it is to be in the cold face, so to speak. You need to have that experience. You need to have that lived experience. I wasn't your traditional kind of person that, you know, went and worked for a politician or an AM or what have you and became like a special advisor and, you know, did all of that type of stuff. I was, for me, it was a very different experience. I've always supported different campaigns and and also I've I've worked in the third sector so I've worked and now I'm a you know uh, a trustee for an organization called the Hannah Foundation which helps um, minority children women and families that have faced domestic violence and honor-based abuse etc and have you know other struggles I'm actively and you know also not long ago became a trustee for a theater group called FIO which again is based in Wales and encourages people from working class backgrounds, young people, minorities, to get interested in theatre and, and art. And again, with Showrace and Red Card, I've always been supportive and you know, recently was honoured to become a, a patron for them. But the reason why I say all of these things is, this, is not just to either name drop or just to kind of show that, oh, I'm amazing and I do all these amazing things. But I think it's it's important to always stay really connected and uh, to be very aware of what's around you and don't forget where you come from and don't be shy about it. I haven't got a PhD, but that's okay. I'm not some kind of specialist. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but there are many other things that I, you know, I can do where, you know, I work in an environment. I'm, I'm really, I have an amazing team here in, in the Wales TUC and, and the trade union movement is amazing in its own right. I think um, when you were doing uh, all these various jobs, yeah. you also, didn't you, had a personal encounter with uh, racism in the employment market. Yes. Tell us about that. And this was the first job that I actually applied for. A friend of mine, Liz and I, went into the town centre we were both looking for jobs at the time. We saw a, a sign-up and it said they were looking for staff. So I was like, okay, great. You know, I've, I've worked for my sister for the last God knows how many years. You know, I've got retail experience, I'll go in. And uh, my friend encouraged me, yeah, yeah, go inside. So I went inside and uh, the woman looked at me and said, no, we haven't got any jobs. And I said, well, no, you've got a sign in the window. And she walked over to the window and she took the sign down, came back, uh, put it behind the counter and she said, no, the jobs are gone, there are no jobs. So I said, oh, okay, all right, well, can I leave my CV, as you used to in those days, you know, before the, before the days of everything being digital, where you had to use paper <laughs> and typewriters. Um, so I handed in my CV, and um, I just kind of left it. A day or so later, a friend of mine rung me. She was in town. She rung me from a phone box, when we had phone boxes, and said, oh, Shivana, um, I've just been past that shop. They've got a sign in the window to say that there's a job. And I said, you know what, do me a favour, go in and ask the same questions that I did and take your CV with you and, you know. And they offered her an interview there and then. She turned it down and reminded them that she'd been in prior with me and said that it's disgraceful. You said there was no jobs and what all of a sudden overnight, there are jobs here. So that was the first time that I then, I put a complaint into the... Uh, commissioner, yes, yeah, CRE. So um, I phoned CRE 
we put complaint in. I got a written apology from them and they offered me an interview and I turned it down. So that was my first sort of understanding of how you can use the law and how you um, can challenge employers who think it's perfectly okay to treat people differently. How did you find yourself going into being a full-time trade union official? I was, at the time I was studying in Bristol, I was, uh, again, working in a call centre, as you do, to try and make ends meet and get through. I was also, at the time, doing my dissertation, and a friend of mine, I used to live quite close to the train station, a friend of mine dropped by, and she had a copy of the Voice newspaper, and she left it, I was taking a break, um, losing my mind at that point of having to write this dissertation, uh, because my dissertation was on Islamophobia in the West. So at that time, it was still a very, very new concept. You know, people didn't even accept that there was such a thing. So um, I was writing this dissertation and I uh, picked up the paper. In the paper, there was an advert and it was for something called the TUC Organising Academy. Now, the TUC Organising Academy was basically created in late 90s by the trade union movement in TUC because they felt that the trade union movement, in terms of the officials of the union, needed to be more representative of the union members and workers. So, in the advert, it said, no direct union experience needed, however... Um, you do need to believe in all the following and have experience and have lived experience in all the following. And I thought, well, maybe I can do something with that. And I had a chat with, you know, one of my um, professors and he was like, you need to go for this. And I've heard about this program and I think you'd be really good. And I guess he was right because, you know, on the same day that I applied for, I applied for a job with the council and it was some sort of community outreach support worker type of thing in Bristol Council. I did that interview um, in the morning and then four hours later I needed to be in London on the same day for the, uh, the second round of this process to get in for this academy. And I did and I went and um, eventually after a really long process I was um, offered a, a post, a one-year contract with PCS Union. So how it would work is every union would um, sort of support this new programme and I was with PCS, that was in 2002, it was meant to be for a year. I didn't think that it was going to last past a year, but life kind of continued and under the leadership of Mark Svalker, our general secretary, he was, he was, I, I would say it was a game changer under him in terms of what our union did next and the way that our union looked and the things that we got involved in, we cared about and we campaigned for. And I guess that was part of his vision for the union that we would then become and the union we are. So, yeah, it's from, for me, this is quite funny now because I've almost done, like, a full 360 and I've kind of come back to the TUC again. And Paul Novak, who's the Assistant General Secretary of Maine TUC, he was part of my recruitment at the time for the academy. So it's, it's a really sort of surreal sort of, you know, you think, wow, so many years later, this is where I am now. But of course, I'm on secondment. I am very conscious of the fact that I'm I've, I'm here, sort of speak, till May next year, uh, whilst uh, my predecessor, uh, Martin, is seconded over to the Welsh Government to work on a really important piece of legislation 
the Social Partnership Act that we are looking to bring in that's going to be really important for all workers in Wales because it will protect and enshrine in law workers' rights in Wales, particularly as, you know, as we Brexit and we don't quite know what the UK government has planned for us in real terms. With this uh, social partnership um, bill, as it will initially yes, be, yes. of course the idea is that there will be some kind of conditions imposed on private sector companies that want to have contracts with the Welsh Government. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that, in a sense, is the right way to go in terms of improving people's working conditions? I think that um, it has to be. Because all we have to do is look at the likes of Sports Direct, Amazon, and we know, you know, as trade unionists, the, the real cases. And, you know, for, for the everyday person, you know, they, they've seen the headlines and they've seen the, the documentaries of the way that people are mistreated. And many of these organisations benefit off government in one way or the other, whether it's through being able to use tax loopholes and avoid paying tax, or whether it's by operating on a zero-hour contract basis and exploiting very openly workers. You know, there was the case not long ago where um, a woman had gone and given birth in the toilets and she came back and she carried on working because she was scared that she was going to lose her job. Now, these are things that we always look outside of the UK and point fingers at everybody else and say, oh yeah, this is what everybody else does, but we are completely different here. You know, this is not how we treat people. We are very decent and we care about humanity and we care about treating people well. But actually, in real terms, we don't. So I do think that it's absolutely 100% correct that we do everything that we can to ensure that if any company, business, whoever is going to benefit from the public purse, from taxpayers' money in Wales, is held to account. And part of that is to do with the fact that they have to extend or open collective bargaining and allow unions in to the workplace to unionise workers and to negotiate on a collective basis on people's terms and conditions. And we don't carry on with this sort of zero-hour contract, you know, this driving down uh, wages, this really unhealthy environment that's almost becoming normalised. It's not normal. People should be paying the living wage. It's nothing scientific in this. All the evidence suggests that when people are treated well, they are more likely to show up for work for the next day. They're less likely to get sick. Those environments are much more healthy. They're much more productive. You're going to get more out of people, the people that you employ, if you treat well. That's what this is about. But one of the big problems is that while in the public sector, the unions still have a good record of recruiting members, Mm. in the private sector, for a lot of people, a lot of young people coming into uh, the work uh, environment... Mm. Joining a trade union is just something that's beyond their consciousness, isn't it? How can the trade union movement change that and get back to a position where, when you take a job, Mm -hmm. the natural thing is to join the union? I think that there's some really good examples now where you've got the Better Than Zero campaign, 
Unite Community are doing a lot of work in this space as well. Um, we've seen the muck strike, for example. So there is, and of course, the, the Uber strikes and what have you, that it's involved GMB and other unions. You know, the, the Workers of the World Union, you know, that's not affiliated to the TUC, but nonetheless organises and operates out there. People are much more aware, and I think that the Labour government has been good at amplifying issues around the way that workers are treated and how employers can use the, the current legislation to exploit workers. So, in Wales, of course. Yes, in Wales. And in the UK as well. No, there you know, well, well, you know, the shadow, the, the shadow government, should, should I say. Um, but in, in Wales, you know, the fact that we have a Welsh government that is committed to paying the living wage in the public sector and says that anyone that is covering services that are contracted out, although my personal position is that public services should be public, that's my, you know, that's my personal position. However, given, the, given where we are, it is really important that we unionise those workers, that it becomes completely normal uh, for people. You know, as a trade union movement, you know, we are also looking at alternative ways and means of organising workers, using much, you know, using social media much better. There's an offering resources and advice uh, more openly. I think the days of where, I remember when I used to be an organiser uh, based in London South East, and at that time, Battersea Wandsworth TUC used to run this phone line, uh, which was like, uh, you would call in and it was uh, bad bosses, you know, uh, and you would dial in to this number. And you could either leave a message or there would be somebody to, to listen to you. And um, you would talk about your bad boss. And they would then look to see if that particular workplace is unionised or not. Or is there somebody that would be interested in going in? What could we do? So we would protect the individual's identity, but put some resources behind it and some support behind it. Now, for the lack of resources and, and various other things that line eventually shut down. But it was a good example. And I think that we now need to use our social media much more, better. And we need to be aware of when organisations like the People's Assembly, for example, are running campaigns, we should be much more supportive of those. As trade unionists, we should get involved at grassroots level. It is really important for us to do that. Because we also need to make sure that, and we've talked about this for a very long time, but, you know, trade unionism should be taught to people from a very young age. I mean, I have young children, six and eight, and they're very aware of their rights. They are very vocal on that, but then they have teachers that are active in the union, and I think... Our teaching unions do a lot of work in this area, some amazing work, but we, we just we need to be much more louder. And I think that for me, for the time that I'm in this role, that's one thing that I will really be doing and uh, making sure that people are aware that when decisions are made at certain tables, there has to be a union voice. Um, when employers various different employer bodies, when their chief executives make a, an announcement, we should know that these announcements are coming. They shouldn't be, shouldn't come as a surprise to us. 
we need to be better organised, we need to be louder, we need to be more collective and more supportive of each other's campaigns as well because I think sometimes everyone get just, as is often the case in life, people get busy and you get into your own little silo and you forget how important solidarity actually is, you know, because, you know, take the UCU strike. It's really important that we show and demonstrate our support and solidarity to people who were taking strike action. You know, it's not an easy thing to do. When we say it's more often than not the last resort, it really is, and it can be make or break. And, you know, we've seen the impact of, you know, there was the case of the Cardiff University lecturer who ended up committing suicide because of last year, because of all the, the stress all this additional work that is piled on to individuals that they are expected to just do, like it's no big deal, you know? It's like we've become, it's as if we are normalizing humans becoming robots. We're not robots, you know? This is not artificial intelligence, you know? And we really need to be very aware of that. Of course, one of the very big challenges facing the trade union movement comes with uh, Brexit and with mm. this next phase of yep. negotiations yes. with the EU because yes. we know that um, Boris Johnson's government mm. uh, has refused to align itself with employment rights in the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, they've tried to claim that uh, they've got no intention of reducing employment rights, but if that were really so, mm. why are they not prepared to um, to sign up for that mm-hmm. formally? Mm-hmm. The danger is, isn't it, that uh, mm-hmm. the UK outside the EU could become some kind of um, deregulated, oh. privatised entity yes. off the shore of the yeah. continent of Europe and that employment rights and other rights like consumer rights, general human rights Climate. would just be yep. uh, uh, destroyed. Yes. So what, what challenge or what degree of challenge do you think that poses people like yourself? It's a very interesting question because we've been having that conversation here as well and in the union movement. And um, so we work very closely, of course, with UK TUC and other TUCs, but we work very closely with the devolved nations, so um, the Irish Trade Union Congress and the Scottish Trade Union Congress as well, because we do have devolved governments and devolved powers, um, and the way that we organise is different, therefore... But it is where I would say that this brings into question then one public sector Wales, at least. And for and what does that look like? Because I am concerned that, you know, given that we have more conserv- we now have conservative MPs, who would who would ever thought that we would have something, but you know, we are where we are and who are supportive of Boris Johnson's view of of what the new world should look like. Um, We've had, at the moment, lots of promises from the UK government about the fact that they will protect workers' rights, and they are caring, and they are decent, etc., etc. As a trade union movement, we've got to hold their feet to the fire, so to speak. Um, We need to hold them to account for all the promises that they made, um, there were a number of people that obviously voted for them on the basis that they um, th- that they were promised to be treated a certain way and there wouldn't be deregulation and there wouldn't be this driving down of regulation and workers' rights, um, etc. 
So we now need to think about how we organise and build the union movement so that should a time come where we are again under threat, I mean, of course, you know, the, the, the Welsh government worked with the trade unions when the trade unions were under threat again some years, a few years ago by the UK government in terms of our ability to take strike action. The devolved government and made a, a, made a, a decision that they were going to introduce the trade union legislation in Wales that protected us going further, our ability to, um, to take strike action. But of course, that was only for the devolved aspects that they have responsibility for. But we now need to start thinking about if the UK government excludes the devolved nations from those talks that we are going to be having and the type of Brexit that we are going to be taking, then the trade union movement needs to be ready to respond accordingly because we cannot be in a position where the UK government is dictating how we operate and how we run things in Wales. It is not for the UK government to make a decision as to how we use the money that we are given through the Barnet formula, although there's issues with that as well. Um, but in terms of our devolved responsibilities that we currently have, we hold those dear. We would like further devolution, but of course, then the Barnet formula needs to be looked at again. I'm all for more devolution electoral reform, etc. But we need, we know, you need to look at the details for that. But these are challenging times for us, but we need to be ready to react should such a time come. And we need to be better organised for that. And we need to be working even more closely with the STUC and the um, ICTU, uh, I, um, Irish Trade Union Congress as well to make sure that we are united because, of course, there is still the big question about um, Scotland and whether or not, I mean, of course, they've made it quite clear they would like to remain as part of the EU. And the Irish question is, well, there's lots of questions um, on that one at the moment, but we, we do need to be uh, much more united and be ready for a fight, because I don't think this is going to be easy. But do you think there is an appetite on the part of ordinary workers and ordinary trade unionists ultimately to take strike action? I don't think we're there yet. I think that we have um, a lot of work to do um, to to inform people and some would say educate, but is educate the right word to use? I think that we do need to inform people. We need to talk to people. We need to um, find out how they feel. I mean, industry, you know, we've had so many cuts and closures and, you know, um, plants being shut down. There's the the question then becomes you know this I mean the big question at the moment for example is all the stuff around the shared prosperity fund, and at the moment this is the one which this is, is supposed to replace yes, the, uh, the EU, EU regional aid yes 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 right so there's all these discussions being had and for the best part of over a year um, the TUC as well uh, the Welsh TUC has also been involved in having those discussions with um, Welsh government um, and others um, in Wales about what that would look like where that should go etc etc. But then we've ended up with a Conservative government of the UK that hasn't made it very clear as to where things will go and whether they will control all of that at a UK level and then drip feed the councils accordingly. But, you know, we've had the floods now. 
over this weekend in South Wales. Devastating. Absolutely devastating. Where's the UK government now? I haven't heard much from Boris or anybody else on what's happening here or even the rest of the country. Where is their response? And we have leaders that are still very much denying climate change ever happened. <laughs> you know, they don't believe that uh, a, green, a new Green Deal is worth it, that it is a real thing, that it's something that we should be working towards. They don't believe climate change is happening. You know, they, they are climate change deniers. But right now, in terms of that particular fund and the, and the powers of the council, we're gonna, Wales is going to need some real support. There's been a lot of structural damage as well that we've yet got to um, assess and work through. And, you know, we've had public sector workers working in the emergency services and health and other areas working tirelessly to, to help people this weekend and are continuing. You know, these people hardly ever get a call out or a shout out for all the work that they do and all the volunteers and everything else. But it is, it is worrying that we are, we just don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty. So would you say that you're pessimistic? I would say that I am, uh, I always try and be balanced. Um, so I wouldn't say that I'm pessimistic completely, but I would say that hope for the best and plan for the worst. You've always got to have a plan B. And it's got to be a good one. Shvantash, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.